Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Uh, This week is another installment of... Uh, recordings from me being on the road right now. I'm in Calgary, Canada, ready to give a talk to, I think it's 475 people at the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers tomorrow. So that's very exciting. Uh, And the event we have for you today was a panel I did along with Thomas Iden, who writes for CIP on nuclear issues at Duke University. And there we talked about oil, nuclear, and the future of energy. I think it was a really interesting discussion. I don't have much to say in advance, so I'll just play the play the footage and let me know what you think. Uh, welcome, thank you for coming. My name is Dr. Gary Hall. I'm the director of the program on values and ethics in the marketplace here at Duke University. My program is proud to sponsor this panel discussion, which is a um, uh, philosophic and scientific defense uh, unadulterated defense of both the fossil fuel and nuclear power uh, industries. Uh, brief word on the format. The panelists have about 20, maybe 30 minutes of presentation, and then we'll open it up for uh, an hour or so with whatever comments and questions you have. Uh, we also have a fairly large live stream audience, and they will be sending in comments and questions too. So if you hear Sarah speak up, that's where they're coming from. Uh, I'd like to thank our two panelists who've come from a long distance to present this material and to my program's assistant, Sarah, for all of her work in putting this together. Uh, Our two panelists uh, on my far right, Alex Epstein, who's a Duke O2 grad, is president of the Center for Industrial Progress and an expert in energy and industrial policy. His writings have been published in, among others, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes and Investors Business Daily. He's a leading free market energy debater and has debated individuals such as Bill McKibben, organizations such as Greenpeace, Occupy Wall Street, and other such environmentalist groups. Thomas Iden is a nuclear engineer and researcher at the Center for Industrial Progress. He has conducted research at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Argonne National Laboratory. When not researching, Mr. Iden is a passionate activist, not only for nuclear power, but also for fossil fuels. And gentlemen, now it's yours. Thank you. All right. All right. Let me just do a, a bit of surveying. We have, I, I imagine, probably a more heavily student-weighted audience on the live stream. We've got a very professional audience here. So just out of curiosity, how many of you are from the energy world? All right, and how, how many of you are from the environmental or environmental studies world? All right, so that's who you, you're exhausting the field. Okay. Well, I assume you will have comments. Um, all right, so uh, Dr. Hull mentioned that we're going to be uh, defending fossil fuels, in particular oil uh, and nuclear power, uh, and that's definitely our viewpoint. Uh, but I think it's important to start out with just some basic understanding of these technologies, what they are, how they work what their scope is, 
and perhaps most importantly, why we use them. Um, I find in these debates, people often jump too much toward, this is my opinion, this is bad, this is good, but without understanding even something like, what is oil? What is uranium? What is uh, nuclear power? So I'm going to be talking a bit uh, about that. So I'm going to focus on oil, uh, which is relatively my area of expertise, and then uh, I'll ask Thomas some questions about nuclear, which he has a lot of expertise in. So let's start with oil. So I have in front of me a 16 ounce uh, bottle. How many ounces in a gallon? Pop quiz. What's that? 64. Yeah. Half a gallon. 128. 128. OK. What's 128 divided by 16? OK. So there are eight of these in a gallon. And we, each of us on average, for an average American, consumes three gallons a day. So that's 24 of these, of this very controversial liquid called oil, every single day. And I want to really focus on two questions at the outset. One is, what do we use all this oil for exactly? And then two, why do we use oil for these things instead of something else? Because the issue of alternative energy is certainly uh, a big issue. So let's start out with, uh, and anyone on the live stream is welcome to jump in at any point. Uh, what do we? What are some of the things we use this liquid for? Transportation. Okay. So, what what kinds of transportation? Um, air transportation, uh, sea transportation, land, land transportation. Okay. So, yeah. Basically, ninety-five percent of the transportation in the world is powered by this one substance. Now, this substance, uh, oil, which in its in its native form, when you get it out of the ground, is actually a fairly useless substance. It's basically this compressed pile of liquid dead plants and then the industry figures out how to refine it into different sorts of fuel for different sorts of vehicles. Uh, so often in the sea it'll use what's called heavy oil. Uh, in, the, in the air it'll use jet fuel or kerosene. Uh, trucks will use diesel and then of course our cars predominantly use gasoline. So that's, that's the main known usage uh, for it. Another, another big usage that we don't always think about is in mining and agriculture. So transportation is not just crucial for getting us around, but it's really crucial for every single product in our economy. So if you think about anything, anything in the world, literally any physical thing essentially comes from two places. Well, it comes from one place, the ground, and either it's mined or it's grown. That's basically it. And both of those require uh, portable power, power that can move around. So all the mining equipment is powered by oil, and all of the growing equipment or agricultural equipment is powered by oil. And this is why in the economy what you'll see is that the price of oil is such a profound economic uh, factor. So in periods of prosperity, the price of oil is almost always quite low. Uh, and in relatively less prosperity, it's, it's relatively high. So this is one reason why people care about oil above all, because it's this n completely overwhelming source of portable power. We'll discuss why. And that affects every single thing. So whenever the price of oil goes up, directly or indirectly, the price of every other thing goes up. That's how that's how important portable power is. All right. So that's one big usage: portable power. What's can anyone think of, of other usages of oil? Like plastics and building styrofoam. materials. Yeah. So plastics, building materials, styrofoam, other things. Can anyone think of other materials? All right. Yeah, this is something I found, uh, part of what got me into energy was actually just discovering that 
as good a school as Duke was, I had never really learned anything about energy. And I had a fairly technical education. I mean, I studied computer science, which required you to take a bunch of science classes. And I studied philosophy, which didn't require you to study energy. But it's such a big thing in the world, and yet I found that A, I didn't understand energy, and B, I had no idea that basically the whole world around me was made of oil. So essentially, an, an enormous percentage of modern materials are derived from this one almost magical substance of liquid dead plants. So let's say you, know, you go into a hospital, artificial heart, that's a petroleum or oil-based product. All the walls to keep it sanitary are going to be coated with Teflon. That's an oil-based product. Any kind of plastic, almost, is either going to be made of oil or natural gas, like this uh, water bottle. And it's just really remarkable. I started seeing the whole world in terms of what's made of oil. So like the coating on the floor is oil, the, the screen of the computer, uh, you know, the inside phony wood of that table, the carpet, the wheels, uh, the paint, the insulation. Uh, we live in a whole world made of oil. And so again, we have the phenomenon of if the price of oil goes up, the price of everything in our world goes up. So to give you a sense of just how crucial this is, um, this kind of material, I think it's helpful to look at what's happened. We often think of just transportation, but I want to talk about agriculture. So if we look at the late, if we look at the late um, 1960s, has anyone here ever heard of the book called The Population Bomb? Uh, so one of the, the huge concerns, I mean, whenever, in most educational systems, when you're young, they'll teach you the world is overpopulated, everyone's going to starve. I certainly got that, you know, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but it was particularly acute, and there's some reason for it. I mean, historically, uh, populations would grow sometimes, uh, and then they would be unable to feed themselves, and people would die off in fairly large numbers. And in the late 60s, people thought, well, this is going to happen again. So here's, <coughs> here's a couple of quotes. One is from the New York Times. While there have always been famines and warnings of famine, food experts generally agree that the situation is now substantially different. The problem is becoming so acute that every nation, institution, and every human being will ultimately be affected. And then um, there was a, a group of leading American intellectuals at the time, and they said, quote, the world as we know it will likely be ruined before the year 2000. World food production cannot keep pace with the galloping growth of population. So back then you have 3.8 billion people, and the consensus is, or at least a very popular view, is everyone is going to starve or hundreds of millions of people will starve at, at minimum. And now what you have is you have 7 billion people and it's actually the best fed population in history. Now one part of this is, is genetic engineering, which is a whole other uh, controversial subject in terms of genetically engineering crops in a certain way. But an indispensable uh, factor is the fact that we had portable power to basically have machines do all of the farming for us. So you can think of energy or oil as like machine calories. So we in our body, you know, we only have so much energy, we only have so much power. That's why human beings couldn't live very long or very prosperously until the Industrial Revolution. But once you can have machines and then you can feed them energy, then you can do almost as much work as you want. So the reason we can feed 7 billion people is because we have these machines and because we have the machine calories to fuel them. And what that means is if we're not allowed to use those calories or those calories become too expensive, the whole world food production system as we know it uh, collapses. So this is uh, 
the function oil is filling, even if you think that there's a problem with oil, we have to realize this is a life and death function. So whenever anyone says, we got to get rid of oil, oil's an addiction, it's a very serious uh, claim. So let's, let's get, uh, I'll answer a little more quickly, the second question, which is, why do we use, why do we use oil instead of other things? And again, I'll go back to my own experience. My, my education I taught me that basically, well, we've just used oil for transportation from the beginning. I mean, the car just happened to be powered by oil. And now, fortunately, we have innovative alternatives like the electric car uh, and ethanol-powered car. And, you know, ethanol is a form of alcohol. And, but then when I started researching the history of oil, I found it really fascinating because in the, in the early 1900s, you had this furious debate over which is going to be the future of the automobile. And guess what it was? Gasoline, the electric car, or the ethanol car. So this, the whole, it turns out all these technologies have been around for over a century. And what was even more fascinating to me was that if, if you looked at what the consensus was, the consensus at the time was that the uh, electrical car or the ethanol car were superior. So for example, the New York Times 1911 says that the electrical car, quote, has long been recognized as the ideal solution because it is, quote, cleaner and quieter and, quote, much more economical. So uh, unfortunately, that was not true at all. I mean, they didn't, but, but if you look through the New York Times quotes over the years, they keep saying, so as one commentator says, the next electric car is the next big thing and it always will be, if that makes sense. So it's always in 10 years, it's going to be, it's going to be uh, the leader. And the point here is not to, I don't mean to sort of criticize electric cars inherently, it's just that, it's just that it, there's, fa it's fascinating, there's been this long history that most of us don't know about where it's been unable to compete. And then ethanol, I found even more interesting because if you think of who's the person you most associate, the man in the whole history of the world who you most associate with gasoline cars, say a name. Okay, everyone says Ford, right? Henry Ford. And what most people don't know about Henry Ford is that his first vehicle, the quadricycle, ran on ethanol. But not only that, it's not that it ran on <laughs> ethanol and then he like said, oh, gasoline's better. To his dying day, Henry Ford thought that ethanol was the best form of fuel and he called it, quote, the fuel of the future. And his whole life, he called it the fuel of the future. And yet Ford's ran on gasoline. Why? And this is the most powerful man in the auto industry. He's a billionaire. He has so much influence, so much money. Why did Ford's run on gasoline? Right, because they would have been bankrupt. They would have lost. So competitively, whatever Ford thought or hoped, uh, the reality was that this was the best, cheapest form of portable power that mankind could devise. And what I'll argue and elaborate on tonight is that that is still the case. And that's not to say that we'll always use oil or there's anything intrinsically uh, desirable about using oil. It's just that we use it because it's the best. So the two big takeaways are, we use oil for 95% of portable power for all of these modern materials that are life and death, and we do it because it's the best way of doing it. And so if we prevent ourselves from using the best way, if we restrict it and we force ourselves to use inferior alternatives before they've proven themselves and proven superior, we're guaranteeing things like fewer people are going to have food, fewer people are going to have medicine. Uh, which is made of oil. We're guaranteeing suffering and death. So there were some advertisements for this, which I didn't happen to make up, but which I agree with, which said something like uh, alternative energy <coughs> equals death. 
And it's not the energy itself. There's nothing wrong with ethanol like that's causing any problems. But if we're forced to stop using the best, that means we have to use something less, and that means all the life-giving benefits uh, disappear. Now, one just final thing so we can segue into what Thomas has to say. <coughs> one really fascinating, if we think about um, the future of energy, one really fascinating aspect of oil that makes it so desirable is what's called its energy density, or you can think of it as like a strength to weight <coughs> ratio. So oil is portable power. It, the reason why we use it is because it, it contains so many calories in such a small space. So if you're flying a plane, you need a lot of calories uh, in a small space. Also, if you're trying to produce power cheaply and efficiently, there are reasons why you want a small amount of stuff versus, let's say, hundreds and hundreds of miles worth of solar panels made of expensive materials. Efficiency favors energy density. And what I'm going to ask Thomas about now is nuclear power, because although oil has this amazing energy density, it turns out that nuclear power, in this respect, puts oil to shame. So nuclear, uh, not nuclear, Thomas, uh, what is the, compare the energy density <coughs> of nuclear power, the uranium we use in nuclear power, to uh, oil, which, as we said, has all these amazing properties. Sure. I'm actually going to ask the audience, how many gallons, just a guess, can you guess how many gallons of oil are equal in energy to one gram of uranium? Does anyone have a guess? I'll guess 100. She, we got 100. Is anyone on the live stream? Thousands. Thousands? So it turns out that one gram, one little gram of uranium is energy equivalent to up to 600 gallons of oil. And so uranium and other new, uh, materials that are used in nuclear reactors as fuel are very, very energy dense. And this allows nuclear plants to run up to 18 months without being refueled. So whether you have like a coal plant where you're shipping in coal every day, nuclear plants, you can put in a, a batch of fresh fuel and it will run continuously with nonstop for up to 18 months. And so with energy density also comes reliability where you can run nuclear plants and for 18 months straight and you will be able to turn on that light switch and take for granted that, we, that that light will come on. Can I, jump, can I just sure. jump in for one second? Yeah, I just want to uh, pause on that for a second because when we talk about alternatives, um, there often isn't a distinction made between a reliable alternative and an unreliable alternative. And the issue that solar and wind have struggled with for the last 75 years as they've tried to compete is the fact that they're dealing with an intermittent or unreliable source. So the fact that you can have this thing that could basically run all the time on demand is tremendous. Now I'd ask, because people might be wondering, what is it about uranium that, I mean, how can we get so much energy? It just seems, it seems science fiction. You've got this tiny amount of thing and you get as much as 600 gallons. What, what is it about the technology that you're getting so much energy from a seemingly impossibly small source? Yeah, so with, uh, with our traditional methods of getting electricity from fossil fuels, um, we essentially burn those. Like in a coal plant, you have a combustion chamber where you're burning coal, coal dust. And the energy that you get from coal is largely a chemical reaction. You're combining your carbon, the oxygen, and you get energy in that process. With uranium and other nuclear fuels, you're undergoing a process called nuclear fission, where you're actually splitting 
these atoms into smaller pieces. And instead of capturing the energy in chemical reactions, you're actually unlocking the energy stored away in the nucleus, which is a tremendous amount of energy in comparison to how chemical reactions work. And so in this respect, a nuclear plant is almost identical to a coal plant, except instead of a combustion chamber, you have a nuclear reactor core. And it's really fascinating that um, we can harness so much power from billions <coughs> of subatomic <coughs> particles in a very large piece of uh, human equipment. It's really fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of uh, just an interesting philosophical point uh, about how the mind is really the ultimate resource. And if we look at, at the nature and the composition of matter, we have Einstein's equation equals mc squared, which essentially means that you cannot fathom the amount of energy that exists in anything, in, in any piece of mass. And yet for almost all of human history, we had very little access to the energy that existed in nature. I mean, at best, we're burning wood, uh, you know, to get a bit of to get a bit of heat. And then we figure out something like Thomas mentioned coal and nuclear are very similar. All that these things are doing <coughs> is they're generating a lot of heat. And then, thanks to James Watt and some other geniuses, we figured out how to turn heat into motion. Because most of the work we need to do, it's great to heat ourselves up, but most of the work we need to do is move stuff around. So it's a huge innovation. Uh, to be able to turn heat then into movement. And almost every form of power you have in the world basically does the same thing. It has a heat source and it, uh, you know, it heats steam or some other sort of thing, creates pressure and moves things. And that's, that's basically our whole civilization. But without the mind, none of this exists. So when you hear about natural resources and stuff, one thing we like to say is they're not really naturally resources. Like he's talking about an obscure metal that was randomly on the ground that no one knew what to do with, and now it's one of the leading things uh, on Earth, which you know, which is exciting for what can the mind come up with in the future. Now, let's then get to the issue of, of safety, because there's a question of okay, we've got nuclear using this. There's an incredible amount of force holding together the uh, you know the nucleus, which we can then unleash. But the idea is, well, isn't this going to unleash an explosion like a nuclear bomb? So can, can you talk about uh, the safety? risks of something like nuclear compared to more traditional sources like oil and coal? Sure. So first and foremost, nuclear plants cannot explode like a bomb. It's physically impossible. Um, nuclear fuel is um, comprised of primary uranium in our commercial reactors uh, these days, and there's a thing called an isotope, and it's basically a way to distinguish one uh, weight of uranium versus another. So naturally there exists this isotope called uranium-238 and it's got a massive 238 atomic units. You don't really need to worry about that. But in contrast, <coughs> uranium-235, which is what we use primarily in a nuclear reactor. And we have to enrich uranium. So you probably hear a lot in the news about Iran and enrichment facilities. That's because to harness uh, uranium in commercial reactors that we op currently operate, we need to have a sufficient enrichment of uh, uranium-235. And um, Can you give the percentages? Yeah, so uh, nuclear fuel is typically about 3.5%, whereas in a nuclear bomb you have to have well over 90%. And so it's literally physically impossible to uh, have a, a nuclear plant explode like a bomb. 
Um, is that the second part of the question? Well, I mean, it's just worth pointing out that that's not true of whatever, uh, as many benefits as oil has and coal has and gas, yeah. those things can... Yeah, so in, in terms of safety, um, nuclear power is incredibly safe. If you, historically, if you look at nuclear accidents, um, I mean, I can think of two, and if you count Fukushima, a third one, but in terms of an accident, if you say you have, say a construction crew hits a gas pipe or you have a chemical truck explode, you have these really very fast violent events that you can't really react to when you have like an explosion. Well, since nuclear plants under extreme accident scenarios don't explode, they melt down or have other issues, you have on, on hours, days, and even weeks to react to unfolding events. And so with, when a nuclear power plant is undergoing an accident scenario, there's a lot of time to react, to mitigate um, more damage, and to be able to control the event, to better control the event. All right, so I'm, uh, I'm guessing there will be more questions about this issue. It's, it's yeah. a fascinating issue, but I think the more we understand it, the more uh, we realize it's actually got all these amazing safety advantages that almost nothing else has. Uh, but let's, let's wrap up with the economic issue, because there's an interesting economic trajectory of this technology where in the 70s uh, you had many, many companies building nuclear plants. They were mm -hmm. on the rise. It was viewed as the, f the fuel of the future. And while in many other countries it, it's being built out, and in France most prominently it's a large percentage, in the U.S. it's, it's almost completely stalled. So, and I hear a lot, and for instance, uh, I was here in November debating uh, Bill McKibben, and, uh, McKibben insisted that, well, nuclear is just too expensive, and so it, it turned out it wasn't that efficient a source of energy. Could you comment on the economics of it? Yeah, so it's really fascinating because just a few weeks ago I toured Kiwani Nuclear Power Station in Wisconsin, um, and I learned that back in the 1970s, I think it was 76 they built the plant, it cost approximately mm, 2.6, no, no, $256 million. And if you adjust for inflation to 2013, 2012 dollars, it's about 700 million dollars. So back then, nuclear plants. Hmm? How large is it? How it, large is the plant? It's a 560-60 megawatt plant. So that would be what cost per per megawatt? Oh well, that's that's a slightly. Uh, I can get into that, but um, so you have a, a and this is a relatively small power plant. Um, costs on the order of $200 billion back in the day, $700 million these days. And, but if you were to build a nuclear power plant today, which they are doing down in Georgia, nuclear plants today cost on the order of $5 billion. And so uh, my first question <coughs> is, well, how, how is this so? Because when I think of, say, my game console or my vehicle or any technology that I use, typically as we gain more experience in producing it, operating it, learning how it works, costs, it's called maturity. The technology matures and costs typically go down. So why, why is nuclear power on order of billions of dollars today? And so researching the issue, I, I, I find that um, after Three Mile Island, which was a complete non-disaster, which we can talk about later in Q&A, there was what was called ratcheting in the regulatory environment where uh, the amount of controls on the nuclear industry to, uh, mitig to like, mitigate accidents continued to increase and never decrease even though there were, uh, if you look back, there's a very lack of, a large lack of uh, 
accidents occurring. So all these regulatory controls that they're adding on contributes to the cost of producing a nuclear power plant. Um, I also found that during construction of certain plants, rules uh, the rules had changed and the uh, utilities were actually forced to either deconstruct part of the plant and rebuild it to the new specifications or alter, alter things mid-construction, which is horribly expensive and also really messes with the supply chain, getting these people, uh, getting out their contractors to construct things. And finally, um, a lot of the anti-nuclear movement, um, they do things like they uh, handcuff themselves to construction equipment and uh, sue utilities and hold up uh, construction in what are, in like the NRC they have um, public meetings where the public gets involved and they hold up the process for licensing in these public meetings. And so that contributes a lot to the upfront cost of nuclear plants too because, because nuclear plants are relatively more complex than other forms of power generation, most companies take out large loans to build the plants, which then after they're built, they're really easy to run, cheap to run, and they get their cost back, or their money back. But um, initially, the upfront cost is significant, and they take out large loans. And then all these disruptions, these rule changes, these groups that uh, sue and hold up the construction process, that interest on those loans accrues over time and becomes, you know, the, co the cost goes up significantly. So a lot of interference in the industry contributes to a lot of this, of what is termed uneconomical power. Uh, one, one quick point just about the law on this, and then, then I really want to open it up. Uh, and so the issue is, there's, you might ask, okay, well, what, how, you know, how do we know? Maybe this was just the right amount of, of uh, law to protect people against the dangers of nuclear. I think one of the principles is whatever the law is, it can't it needs to be scientific in the sense of um, it can't hold one technology to a different safety standard than another. And what we have with nuclear is it is by far, and this is as someone whose sort of first love and energy was oil, by far the safest form of power generation ever created, bar none, not, not even close. There's zero deaths from nuclear power generation in the civilized world. We can talk about Chernobyl, which is a, a pre-modern, uh, basically death trap created by a, you know, the Soviet Union. But this is like a completely unmatched record. Uh, when something goes wrong, nobody dies <coughs> from it. And yet it's held to the quote highest standard. So it has the most cost imposed on it, even though it is the uh, safest. So that's, uh, that's part of our reason for thinking, both the evidence of the past, knowing that costs go down over time and knowing what's happened, that this is an incredibly discriminated against uh, technology and that we have this huge upside in the future if we, if we stop discriminating against it and we learn the, the actual uh, science of it. So essentially, I think the ads for this said something like oil plus nuclear equals life. And I would say oil is, is completely essential to life today and for the foreseeable future. And nuclear is, is essential today, but, we, but it has almost unlimited potential in the future. And in both cases, I think we really need to value energy and we really need to take an objective scientific approach uh, to the laws about energy. So. Uh, looking forward to hearing questions and comments. Yes? The, the problem I have with nuclear is because the spent fuel rods here in the United States, they don't allow you to the recycle them. Or mm -hmm. the, I don't know what the correct term is. Like they do in France, where they can recycle them there and reuse the fuel. And here we don't for some reason. I mean, I've heard that, well, you know, the government is afraid that people will be able to get it and make nuclear weapons out of it. 
And then Obama went and closed the, um, the site in Nevada to store all that. And so like the, the nuclear site that's uh, over there in um, close to Raleigh, that uh, plant. Yes, yes. Uh, they're storing all their, their fuels there, mm -hmm. I guess in, in pools of water. And there's no place for them to go since these repository areas have been closed down by, by the president. So how, how is that going to be addressed? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really interesting issue because um, from a technological standpoint, I mean, nuclear waste, spent nuclear fuel is very, I mean, we have tech ways to store it very safely and there's plenty of technical solutions to do that. But it's a matter of intrusive government policies or, or um, not being able to, uh, not in my backyard mentality to storing this stuff. And so storing the, so what happens after they, after they use a batch of fuel, they are moved to those spent fuel pools, which they are relatively safe in there. And they store those there for between five and 10 years and let a lot of the very highly radioactive stuff decay off. And then what they do is they take it out of the pool and then they store it in uh, steel lined cement casks and then they just sit. And I mean, the, the con cement concrete is, you know, half a foot thick and it's like a quarter inch of steel. So, I mean, the stuff isn't going anywhere. It's not going to get out and go everywhere. And so, on the on-site on sorry on-site storage is actually pretty safe, but in terms of being able to be able to be to have the freedom to go and create like say a repository, there really isn't a whole lot of freedom to do that because like Yucca Mountain, which is was primarily a government program, um, there was no technical reason cited for shutting that down. It was purely political, um, and that's the most studied piece of real estate on the planet. And the actual repository was um, designed to hold this stuff for over a million years. Like it was designed so that if civilization ended, whatever civilization would crop up after us would not be harmed by it. It was ridiculous. So, I mean, there's plenty of te technical solutions, and as a nuclear engineer, just by looking at that by itself is actually really one of the, uh, is really a non-issue in my view. It's a non-issue? Well, yeah. I, I, yeah, I want to comment on this issue of, of discrimination. I think there's a general fear of like man-made substances or substances that we create, so such as, as spent fuel, when you, know, you use a certain amount of uranium, a certain amount of it is left in a different form, and it's called quote-unquote nuclear waste and it's going to you know, lead to the three-eyed fish and the Simpsons and this kind of thing. I think we really need to look at what is the evidence about the dangers of this kind of thing, like so this lying in a pool of water or so stored in a cask versus other technologies. And it's unequivocal in my view that, that this is one of the smallest dangers that we face. So if we take, for instance, the mining process in involved in creating uh, the materials for windmills or the mining process involved in solar, or even the process of storing endless amounts of expired solar panels, which are enormously toxic materials with a 15-year expiration date. Why is there no focus on those? And it's because there is this discrimination where the nuclear is viewed as unnatural or man-made, which is somehow unnatural, mm -hmm. and the solar and wind is viewed as, as natural. And I think in general, when you hear people afraid of chemicals and waste and all this stuff, 
the distinction to make is what's actually safe and what's actually dangerous given the context and not to have this prejudice against man-made stuff. This comes up in the fracking thing where people say, oh my gosh, we're putting chemicals in the ground. Well, when you use arsenic and sulfur in organic agriculture, you're putting chemicals in the ground too. The question is, is it safe or not? So I, I, I started calling this, uh, th there's this view that if, if man does it, it's bad and scary, and if nature does it, it's good. So I, I call this human racism, because I think there's a bias against anything human beings uh, make, and I think it's, it's a philosophical view that comes from environmentalism and often um, primitive religions and other places, but it's not, uh, it, we really need to watch out for and we need to be objective about what benefits life, what doesn't, and what's a real danger. Because there are people afraid of nuclear waste who are never going to be touched by it, and yet they're texting while driving their friends about how dangerous this <laughs> is. <laughs> um, I just want to make one quick point about recycling. Mm -hmm. Yes, nuclear uh, fuel can be recycled multiple times, mm -hmm. and uh, about the policy, we're not to my understanding, um, we're not allowed to reprocess fuel in the United States as a model to other countries to not do the same because in the recycling process, there is the potential to siphon off bomb-making materials. And so the um, idea was, well, if we don't do it, you don't have to. But France does it. Exactly. I mean, they get 80% of their fuel energy. You made my point. <laughs> so just, just add one more thing. Recycling is recycling is a manufacturing process, right? So like anything, you're putting in inputs and you're getting at outputs, and some forms of manufacturing are, are inefficient. So for example, if I have a whole bunch of recycled paper, uh, to my knowledge, in every case that I've ever heard of, that's an enormous waste of resources. You're wasting a bunch of energy to create inferior paper. So the question is, if you have this material that should not be scary, that's much more innocuous and safe than many other things in the world, there's no obligation to recycle it. It's a purely economic uh, question, and I've heard very strong arguments that at this point in time, it's not economic. And what Correct. will often happen is that something that's not economic now, like let's say getting electricity from garbage, might be in the future. And what's nice about capitalism is it's always figuring out ways to make wealth out of waste. But sometimes there's a delay, and if you try to, and if you turn, if you waste uh, wealth on waste, then you're just creating more waste. So you, you have to, it has to be the right time. Uh, yes? I appreciate your identification as an energy philosopher um, and your observation that if something is man-made, it's bad, to which I would add, which you just alluded to, if it's man-made and there's somebody looking to make a dollar uh, doing it, then it's doubly bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, man makes stuff to make dollars. Yeah. Um, <coughs> in no particular order, I believe this is correct, that the greatest polluter on the face of the earth in the history of the world is the United States government itself. Period. It's Mother Nature, but what? Well, uh, <laughs> the United States government is certainly doing its part, and even in the nuclear field. But how so? I spent most of my life in uh, Denver, Colorado, uh, close enough to the Rocky Mountain Arsenal and Rocky Flats, which they're still trying to clean up. Uh-huh. Uh, where they made uh, nuclear triggers, mm -hmm. uh, which they never wanted to talk about. And uh -huh. assured all the local residents that everything was safe. Um, <coughs> the misinformation. I think most recently, uh, and I'll cite my source, in terms of uh, fracking mm -hmm. and drilling wells, 
and contaminating underground water. Mm -hmm. The largest domestic aquifer is the Oglala Aquifer, mm -hmm. which covers several states. Mm -hmm. There have been thousands of wells drilled and no problem. Mm -hmm. My source on that is T. Boone Pickens, who spent his life in the energy industry, and again, I mean, he's interested in man-made stuff, and he's interested in making a dollar. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's also smart enough to realize, since he was looking into wind generation, uh, there's no infrastructure. You can't store it, and you can't transport it, and it ain't going to work. Mm -hmm. So he gave it up. Fine. Um, what I see as our biggest problem is ourselves. When you confuse the technological and the economic with an overlay of the political and the judicial, it becomes nigh unto hopeless. In connection with your, uh, you know, the, the difficulties in developing nuclear power, uh, the lawsuits that have stymied this, you know, whatever your initial cost estimates were when you're tied up for years in court or before, or before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission or FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, simply can't be done. I also recall, since I was quite a young man at the time, one of my best friends as a kid, actually my best friend, his older sister's boyfriend, uh, then husband, was a graduate of the Naval Academy and was on the commissioning crew of the USS Enterprise. So we're going back 50 years to, or so to a nuclear carrier, which I think was only recently decommissioned. And since then, the United States Navy has had many nuclear vessels including a nuclear submarine fleet. And I've never heard of a single problem associated okay. with any one of them. Gee, go figure. Yeah, so yeah, the, that's, yeah, I mean, you make a, a lot of important points. I just say, I, I take your point, and I know what you're getting at with calling the U.S. government uh, a polluter, but I said very seriously that Mother Nature is the biggest polluter in history, and I think it's a very important point that there's, again, this human racism where only human beings can create pollution or only all the harmful waste comes from human beings. But part of the reason why we have very low life expectancies throughout history is that um, nature can be very, very unfriendly to man and is, is often trying to compete uh, against us from you know, the very small organisms to very large animals uh, trying to kill us. And they certainly will create all kinds of waste without any kind of concern for, for human life. And, and therefore, whatever the US government has done wrong, it created a society where we can have the greatest quality of life and the greatest environment in history. And there's certainly no environment I would rather live in uh, than today. So while there's certainly room for improvement and while governments tend to be uh, make a lot of mistakes here, um, communist governments being by far the worst, uh, I think it's worth saying that the US government has been an overwhelming force for good in terms of protect, allowing us to protect ourselves from the dangers of nature for the rest of nature. Yes? Okay, I think what he's referring to, like when Superfund first came out, the government found out that 40 the top 100 sites were actually government sites. Mm -hmm. And I doubt any of those 100 sites was created by the nature. But my question is, like when you build a nuclear plant, like you were referring to, there's a life cycle analysis, and there's secondary energy and primary energy. And it takes energy to make energy. We're all pretty much familiar with what you have to do, like get oil, you explore, 
can, can somehow we can bring it from Venezuela cheaper than Canada, which gives us reduced pricing. But like when you make nuclear energy, like how you talk about the economics, but how green is it? How green is it? Yeah, like like the process. I don't know how you actually make nuclear energy, but is everything right there in the plant, or you're using gas and oil to make energy? Like if you did the physics, sure, of, of to actually make it. Yeah. So. Um I mean, you do need to mine the uranium or the uh, thorium or whatever fuel you're using. And so there are, you do need to use oil for like those machines. Um, but then once you, and then there's some um, fabrication processes, some chemical reactions that occur to create the compound that we use in the reactors. And then there's the enrichment process, which uses energy as well. But then when you have usable fuel, like I said, <coughs> you're, uh, running continuous amounts of energy for 18 months or so and the amount that's produced just the amount that goes in pales in comparison to what's output because uranium is that much more energy dense. So that's actually a positive nuclear industry. Yeah. It and also nuclear power doesn't emit pollution other than the uh, what would be going into say the mining or when you're using uh, combustion engine to mine something. Yeah, that's the, I mean, the general trend is that the more dense the material, uh, you know, the fewer resources you need. Now, nuclear, you need, you know, quite a bit of infrastructure, but as I said, once you have it, you can run a long time, and my, get, my very strong guess is that had there not been the irrational government discrimination against nuclear, you would have seen, uh, you know, much more efficient infrastructure like you would see for any other technology. In the same way, Think about what a computer used to be versus what it is uh, today. But it's it's very stymied, and part of the way it's stymied is the government has to approve certain reactor designs, and th but then you're you're just c constantly being stuck uh, in these you know bizarre frozen periods of innovation. I actually have a question on that. I'm actually writing a book on exactly what you're talking about. Um, I'm a free market person. I'm not against the environment. I'm technology and for the environment working together. But the biggest obstacle I can see for free markets, it's not externalities, it's not environmentalists talking about urbanization, it's irrational behavior. And as you know, Duke has a lot of behavioral economics. Uh -huh. And when I talk to libertarian think tanks, I used to work for several think tanks, and I don't think they have an answer for irrational behavior. Because mm -hmm. free markets, assume that people are knowledgeable and make rational decisions. Mm, and I would not my view of them. <laughs> my view assumes that I would rather have free people who aren't allowed to coerce me. Be If they're going to be irrational, I'd rather them be legally prohibited from ordering me around than giving them government positions to <laughs> order me around. <laughs> well, they call it nudges. Like, the government indirectly is influencing their behavior through these power plants, subsidizing light bulbs, or whatever right. they do. They're trying to change their behavior. But the markets aren't doing it. And I, I go to a lot of uh, different conferences, and they bash the, the markets. And to be honest with you, I can't come up with an answer. I mean, I'd like to talk, email you in the future. Yeah, I mean, go this, for it. This, this I've never had trouble coming up with an answer to someone who told me I shouldn't be free. 
No, no, but it, but it, it doesn't. But work. part of the okay, but so let me then recommend. I mean, feel free to anyone can email me. Uh, Alex at alexepstein.com is the easiest one to remember. Uh, but if you read the book Capitalism: The Unknown Ideal by Ayn Rand, Chapter One, um, what is capitalism? Just kind of a s very simple title. Like, why would you need an essay on what is capitalism? Everyone knows what capitalism is, right? But uh, she gives a really profound analysis of the relationship between economics uh, and political philosophy and moral philosophy. And part of the viewpoint is that economics, the way people look at economics is often in a very <coughs> collectivist way. Like they assume that groups come before individuals and that's their starting point and they reason from there. And the argument is that's totally wrong. You need to start from individuals and understand each individual, uh, you know, has his own value, you know, he owns his own life, and you study his interactions from the perspective of how do individuals rationally collaborate with one another, but you never lose the perspective of it's my life. So if Cass Sunstein or one of these other uh, guys comes and says, hey, I've got a way to nudge you to rationality, I, you know, essentially to put it technically, I can say go to hell because there's no economic argument that can say you own someone else's uh, because it's life. Yeah, but it's, it's part of the view. The government is my parent, but morally, the government isn't my parent, and even my parent can't tell me what to do once yeah, I become. He's one of the few people adult. that are actually addressing it. What's that? He's one of the few people that's actually addressing that issue. Yeah. And ironically, he goes to that liberal Harvard. I mean, he's, he's now at Harvard. Yeah, I, I really think his ideas are, are horrible, but that's, that's <laughs> another <laughs> subject. Uh, yes. Yes, here. Um, so I recently saw the article, um, The Dirty Secret of Green Cars, Electric Cars. Oh, okay. Did you see that? Yes. Um, so I thought that was good. Didn't get a whole lot of play. I don't think enough. So I'll just comment on that if you, you would. And then for you, I'd love to know the process that has to happen in front of that inter uh, nuclear plant being built in Georgia. How does it happen now? It's been stalled for so long. Yeah. What happened to move that along, and and what has to happen inch by inch for that to actually? Sure, that's a harder question. So you can go with that, and then I'll talk about <laughs> cars. So I mean, don't make it real detailed, but I'm just since it doesn't happen very often, what happened? In yeah, this case? actually, uh, I mean, there's a for all intents and purposes, the plant Volvo, which is the one in Georgia, is. They're going to be the first newly operated plant since like this. It's been 30 years yeah. since they built one, in. and it's primarily because uh, nuclear plants have to go through several licensing processes. One, they have to license the site in which they're being built, and then they need a license to actually run the plant. And there have been some. They've played around with the formula of how that works, and they finally came up with what's called a combined license, which you can get both at once. Because back, uh, a while back, there was a plant called Shoreham, which actually had the site license. They built the plant, and then the local government blocked them from getting an operating license, and so they sold it off before they. So there's a lot of. So who's they? Hmm? Who is they? Hmm. They designed this license that they could combine. Who's they? Oh, the NRC. The NRC, okay. And so there's. A Does yeah. everyone know what that stands for? Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And so yeah, th there's a licensing, uh, two licenses, one for operating, one for the site, and then the when the designs for the plants, which there are several companies like Westinghouse or um, that Babcock and Wilcox, um, that design these plants, and then they have to do 
design the plants to all sorts of specifications. There's, it's in the, I mean, the, I can't tell you how long the code of federal, federal regulations is. It's just massive. But so all these plants have to be up to a certain spec, and then if those rules change while they're constructing the plant, they have to make those changes accordingly. And so that's part of the high capital cost too, is conforming to the controls. But primarily, it's you have to get these two licenses, and then usually the uh, utility picks out a plant design from one of the vendors, and then they build it on that site once they get those um, licenses. And from start to finish, what's that time frame on that particular plant? <sighs> um, plant Vogel, I'm not 100% certain, but it's... Just basic. I would say anywhere like uh, I would say good estimates like seven years to build a plant. So well, but but often it's infinity because you start and then you're not allowed to. And I mean, you have many, many that were in that were started and never built, which is that's true. Yeah. I mean, which is it, I mean, it's the economic equivalent of terrorism, where at any point you know that you can just be struck down. And from an investor perspective, that is very unattractive. So what about this one? So Plant Vogel is in what's called a regulated market, which in, in this market in particular is electricity. So they're able to, they, it makes financial sense for them to build this plant in that particular zone because the electrical market is regulated and they're going to get a guaranteed return. Um, the plant I was talking about earlier, Kiwani that I toured, that's actually being shut down in a few months because they can't compete anymore on the, on the open market. And their the um, utility is scuttling some of their plants, their electrical generating facilities in the market, the merchant markets, to go build in regulated markets where they will get guaranteed rates of return because natural gas is so cheap right now that they're it's outpricing them in some of these merchant markets. Yeah. Utilities are a whole subject for another day in terms of you just get paid to waste money essentially. I uh, just one. Uh, electric cars, I think, just the, the point philosophically is that there's nothing inherently wrong with electric cars. There are, and certain things that are very cool uh, about electric cars in terms of how they work. The principle is just we want freedom in energy. And some of the reasons why it can be tempting and often irresistibly tempting to make fun of these kinds of machines is that the advocates of them are advocates of curtailing and restricting the freedom to produce practical energy. but. I absolutely want people to be free to make electric cars, but if you look at, say, Tesla, which is, is the leader right now, the difference between them being free and competing on the market versus Elon Musk publicly saying, we need to stop becoming a mine and burn society. I don't know where he plans to get the materials from Teslas from um, without mining, but nevertheless, and getting $400 million of our money. Uh, for car purchase. Yeah, and then, and then these enormous... In the, that that was just a loan guarantee, but you know, just getting his company bailed out, and then uh, so that's the real issue. The issue is a is a freedom issue, and then it can also be relevant to expose that the people who claim to care about things like pollution and harmful waste completely ignore it in the context of things like electric cars, which which reveals that historically there's been this pattern of whatever practical energy exists there against it. So if you take the modern so-called environmental movement, which I don't think is an accurate name, it's more of an anti-human movement because they're against anything man-made really. They're against coal, they're against oil, they're against natural gas, but they were for natural gas for a little bit when there was very little of it. Now there's a lot, they're against it. Mm -hmm. 
they're against hydropower, at least on a large scale, and they're against nuclear. And at different points, they're even in the 70s, some of them supported coal to get rid of nuclear. And then once they basically got rid of nuclear, then they went after coal. And then once they basically got coal, then they went after gas. Uh, and the point is that the motive is not whatsoever to improve the human environment or to fight pollution. It's simply to attack whatever industrial civilization is run on. And it's fairly, it's, I'm not talking about people who innocently accept this. I'm talking about the leaders who know better. Uh, it's fairly reliable bet that unreliable energy sources will be failures for the foreseeable future, and that's why they can pretend to support them. But I guarantee you, if they build successful solar installations, if they solve the unreliability problem, first thing will be, have you seen these solar mines? Have you seen these toxic panels? And the point is, everything has benefits and hazards. So if you want to destroy something, all you have to do is say, hey, it has hazards, it's dirty energy, we shouldn't use it. Or it's imperfect, therefore it should be illegal. Isn't the basic philosophy behind these environmentalists is that man is the enemy to the planet, and so they're trying to keep civilization down so that we don't destroy the planet? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting where it originates from, but it's really... I mean, it's ultimately, I think it's just anti-man. I mean, you can only really... There's no such thing as sort of caring about the planet independent of man. So the, the philosophical view is that the rest, everything else in the planet is intrinsically valuable and man isn't. So we should, we should strive to minimize our impact, to not use towels of the hotel. Anything we can do to not impact nature that, that's what we're obligated to do. And then the more consistent people say, hey, seven billion people, that's way too much. Let's have three billion. And then, so no, one billion, then 300 million. And then what did the hunter-gatherers have? Maybe we should, we should mm -hmm. live like that. Um, but ultimately, if you look at, at the motivation, it's not, you can't love something in con complete contradiction to yourself. It's not like they love that, you know, monkey in Africa so much and they're willing to die for him. There's really, this is really well characterized in Atlas Shrugged better than anywhere I know, just there's a real hatred of human beings and often where it originates from is interesting, but you can see there's like this virulent hatred by, by the leaders, not, not by a lot of the followers, but a real hatred just of successful people, of industrial civilization, and the same kinds of things you see some kids really don't like the more successful kids or they feel envy and they would rather kind of hurt the other kid even if it hurt them. That's what these guys are like as adults. Yes? <coughs> Three comments and okay. in, no, in no particular order. It, uh, you use the term and beat around that bush that with the not in my backyard, the NIMBY uh -huh. symbol. And it, it, I heard a talk many years ago that uh, really expanded that, and maybe you can use it, mm -hmm. is that the next stage of that is not is, is NIMBY, then there's NIMTO. Do you know what? You know NIMTO? It's not in my term of office. Okay. So it's a and different then, dimension. And then we get the, the true environmentalist, or the group that calls themselves environmentalist, and they're generally, they're best described as being bananas build absolutely nothing anywhere near anybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting why, where else are you going to, how can you build something 
<laughs> far away from anybody. <laughs> Beyond that, now the next issue, and this is also something that you've sort of touched on, and it, it that one of the basic first things that one learns when you take your when an engineer takes the first course in heat transfer or thermodynamics is to do an energy balance. Mm -hmm. And the real question is where do you draw the circle? Where do you start counting this is energy coming in and energy coming out? Mm -hmm. And often that the the answer of whether or not a process makes thermodynamic sense or economic sense. Mm -hmm. Really depends on where you draw that circle. We can look at a, we look at uh, an electric car, for example. And if you just draw that circle right around that car, there's absolutely no environmental release from running that electric engine. Right. Uh, however, if you now include, and I think rightly so, necessarily so. You include the generation of the electricity and the coal-fired power plant. Basically, that right. electric a, vehicle it, is really a coal-fired coal car. car. Yeah, it's a coal car. Uh, and so, just looking at all of those of the alternatives. I know back in the 70s, for example, uh, we were looking at solar panels. There was a lot of issues looking at solar panels. Uh, just the photovoltaics, excuse me. And in the 70s, I don't know what the number is today, but the total amount of energy required to produce a solar panel right. in the 70s exceeded the total amount of energy it would produce in its lifetime. It made no sense at all. And you get the same, it, it's, it's a matter of if you're going to start looking at these alternative processes, alternative energy sources, do it in a well, scientifically and engineering the, the, sound the great basis. Thing about, I mean, it's definitely a point if you're analyzing it as an analyst of, I mean, the, philosophically you could put it as you're looking at the full context or, you know, Be economically you're looking at an integrated way. Don't fool yourself. But what's great about freedom is you don't really need to, as a consumer, you don't need to know any of that stuff. As long as the government is intervening, you just need to know how much it costs, how much it's going to cost in the future, et cetera. I mean, you need to know what a solar panel is really going to cost your house. That's a very hard thing to come by. Well, but you, you, I have, I mean, you have an energy bill, right? Yeah, I, d I do. But now the question is, how much of that was subsidized? Right, no, no, I'm saying, that's what I'm saying. There's once a million and one, one ways right, exactly. to, to Exactly, but once that. we remove those, the great thing is, you know, it, let's take choice of car, electric, ethanol, gasoline. All you need to know if you have the proper laws in place is you know what what meets your budget and any other requirements yeah that's that's the beauty of, of just a free society one of the beauties of a free society is there's all this knowledge that you don't really need to know that culminates in the price anyway, that's an economic point you said uh, if you, you said you had a third point can you make I that quickly I, I, I will okay. on your energy density issue and you're talking about uh, alcohol fuels yes if you look at methanol as opposed to ethanol yeah. it's just a different alcohol Methanol is basically oil and water. Mm -hmm. You look at the chemical structure, oil is basically a CH2 molecule or the carbon-hydrogen ratio yeah, yeah. CH2. 
and methanol is CH2.H2O. Right. So that effectively, and it has exactly the same burning characteristics as mi mixing oil and 50% water. Mm -hmm. And so that you now look at the transportation cost associated with alcohol, you're hauling around an equal amount of water. Mm -hmm. And the economics go to hell in a handbasket real quick, and in terms of infrastructure, the same thing happens. Yeah, I would just add though, if someone, I mean, methanol is an interesting thing because you can make it out of so many different substances. Uh, so we don't need to get into all of that, but it's just another thing with human ingenuity. If you could make that economic, let's say you know you can create, it's got only 50% the density of oil, but let's say you could make it for one eighth the cost, and you could deal with all the corrosion issues and whatnot. Great. So yeah, again, it's not that. about the oil, it's about picking the best that human ingenuity can come up with. Um, this is a very good point. On ethanol, which I think is a giant boondoggle, mm -hmm. we're deprived of the choice. This is the government telling me, yeah. your choice is whatever it is, 10 or 15% ethanol, even though the energy costs in producing that are astronomical. Yeah, and the economic. I mean, it, it makes no sense. <coughs> also, left out of your uh, discussion, and uh, it may not be relevant to uh, what we're concerned about here, in terms of price and the value of the U.S. dollar, mm -hmm. uh, ha has the cost of extracting uh, oil from the sands of Saudi Arabia changed all that much, or is it the, the floating value of the U.S. dollar and the depreciating value of the U.S. dollar? that accounts for $3.69 the pump. And the, the bogus scares concerning foreign oil, understanding that oil is a fungible commodity, the U.S. gets almost no oil directly from the <coughs> Middle East. Mm -hmm. Our foreign oil is Canada and Mexico to a uh, diminishing extent because Mexico's state-run oil business is so inefficient. Mm -hmm. And a small percentage from Venezuela but it's very heavy oil and difficult to refine. Uh, but again, good information, yeah. honest information will lead to much better results. So with that in mind, uh, anyone, well, I highly recommend checking out industrialprogress.net. That's our site. You can subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, just like a little bit of information about each of these. Certainly I think there's an inflation element in the price of oil, but at the same time, you can't judge it but there's just an also an issue of global demand, you know, being generally fairly high for oil. You've got a lot of developing countries that can make use of this incredible substance. It's one of the hardest substances in the world to find substitutes for. So I can't, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't know if anyone can do this, but I, I certainly don't have an exact analysis of how much of it is inflation. Uh, but as for the Saudi thing, certainly the Saudi's cost of extraction has essentially no relevance to the price whatsoever because Saudi Arabia's oil is the cheapest in the world to extract. So if they can extract it for $3 a barrel and it's selling for $100 a barrel, what matters is what, what's in economics called the marginal producer. So the person that maybe in the oil sands in Canada, maybe it's $50 or $60 a barrel and how much of that can be produced or how much of that will the government uh, let be produced. So we certainly have, for sure we have a lot, we have considerably less supply than we could if we were freer, and certainly we have more inflation than we would were the government not inflating the currency. Uh, but to know the exact, I, I think you can only say that as a matter of general principle, it's hard to know the exact percentages.
can you comment on the resources we have within our own borders? Yeah, I mean, thanks to human ingenuity, those non-resources, uh, basically use useless shale, five to ten thousand feet below the earth. I mean, this stone, we which was oil, always exists in rock. Sometimes people think of it as there's this giant swimming pool of oil under the earth, but it's it's always in these rocks that have various degrees of porosity and permeability, so oil can flow through them easily or difficult. And with shale, it's so tightly packed, the oil basically doesn't flow at all, or it flows on a very slow time scale. And what human ingenuity, particularly um, what's called hydraulic fracturing or fracking allows, is it allows you to open up those rocks to make them, to make oil and gas flow. And what's been known for a long time, including in Ayn Rand's book, Atlas Shrugged, is that shale is the mother load. Like there's all this oil shale and yet we couldn't get to it. And one of the characters in the book figured out a way how to get to it. And now it's actually happening in, in real life. And unfortunately, it's been greeted with bizarre claims about groundwater. And I say bizarre because all dangers to groundwater essentially occur near groundwater. So if you even drill an oil, a water well, you can disrupt natural gas and oil in the vicinity to get in the water. It's not the end of the world, it's a natural substance, but it's not great. But fracking is five to 10,000 feet below, and it's you know separated by a lot of impermeable rock. So that's the last thing that will ever affect the groundwater. The reason it's attacked is simply because it's a new term that people can be scared of. Same with nuclear. Again, nuclear didn't present any unique danger, it just was a new thing. And first it was atomic power, so they could say, oh, it's like an atomic bomb. Then they started calling it nuclear power, and then they say, oh, it's just like a nuclear bomb. And it, it's really unfortunate, though, that we're in a world where technological breakthroughs are met with anti-technology opposition. Or I should say, that's always been true, but now what's true is that it has the force of government behind it. So when people were afraid of computers, they couldn't outlaw computers, but now they can outlaw fracking. Mm -hmm. So that's another reason why you don't want the government having these, why you don't want irrational people having, if, you, if you're worried about irrational people, have a free society. Because what you don't want them to do is, is to outlaw fracking. They can not have fracking on their land, that doesn't hurt you that much, but to outlaw fracking, to practically outlaw nuclear power, that's what you know, people with irrational philosophies and, and enormous amounts of government power, that's what they, that's what they uh, lead to. Yes? Can you comment on, on the benefits of ethanol as a transportation fuel from an energy security angle? I know um, yeah. was mentioned, I know he supports um, ethanol production just from the sense, from that, from that angle, he says like, you know, ethanol is, a, is an ugly baby, but you know, it's our baby, I think that's the way I heard him say it once. You know, in terms of reducing, yeah, oil imports. So I think, uh, what do I want to say about this? It's true that many regimes that wish the United States harm uh, have more resources, many more resources than they otherwise would because of oil wealth. And there's a whole history behind this, and I think we completely botched it all, and I taught an oil uh, history course which you can get online if you search my name in oil history, about all the wrong policies and how we did everything wrong. But that, that being said, if you take something like 9-11, that's not prevented by having half as much money, let alone the type of price reductions that would occur if, even if you could produce ethanol efficiently. 
So if there's a foreign policy problem, this isn't you know primarily a foreign policy panel, you need a direct solution. It can't be, I think Iran is going to build a nuclear bomb, therefore I'm going to lower the price of oil by $5 a barrel. That is a ridiculous uh, response. Now, you shouldn't try to help them in any way, but there's a lot of politicians who don't have any ideas in foreign policy or who are afraid of what they think might be the right course of action, so they try to blame the oil industry. So the benefits of ethanol, if it were efficient, would have to be uh, economic. And in terms of energy security then, so there's two aspects of what's called energy security. One is just your, your physical security from attacks by certain nations that are enriched by oil. That's one, and that, that's not helped at all. And the other is just your security of supply. And in general, what you want is you want to ma maximize your freedom to develop energy domestically in the most efficient form, and you want to maximize your ability to trade. Because if you take something like Hurricane Katrina, that would have been much more disruptive to American energy were it not for imported oil. So the, the world, world trade is like having a giant internet uh, of energy. And that's what you want to happen. And when you have that, it's very hard for something like the Arab oil embargo of 1973 to happen and to be efficacious. Uh, it's not even a coincidence that in our country, while that embargo occurred, which was 1.6 million barrels um, a day, I believe, we cut off the Alaskan pipeline for at least five years during that, that period. So that was a restriction uh, of trade. But in general, the key to energy security in terms of secure energy supplies is to lift restrictions on domestic production, but only of good energy. It's, you don't want bad energy. for. And, and then to maximize uh, freedom. So for example, something like the Keystone Pipeline, uh, right now there's this bottleneck in importing Canadian oil. So I mean just the idea of we're, we're saying, oh, we're so dependent on Saudi oil and then we're, uh, you know, we can't import Canadian oil is ridiculous. Uh, just one final thought though, again, this gentleman over here mentioned that it's fungible and that this is important. It doesn't really matter too much where you directly import the oil from. So it's true we don't import any oil from Iran directly, but Iran, the oil price goes up. When we buy oil from anyone, the oil price goes up and that benefits Iran. So it's, it's all like everyone, everyone who benefits or gets harmed by the price of oil, it doesn't matter who you buy it from. You're buying, you're, you're bidding up uh, the general price because all Iran has to do with any country that's friendly to it to say, hey, we're going to lower our price by two cents and everyone's going to swarm over there and buy from them. So the only way to actually work it, if, if the politicians were courageous and wanted to do something about Iran with oil, they would organize a world boycott and then the whole economy would be starved and then that would, that would do something real. But unfortunately, long story short, a lot of this stuff is just rhetoric to get a, around really addressing foreign policy uh, problems. And the only good thing that comes out of the rhetoric is that it seems to favor domestic production, which desperately needs to be favored, but not because it's going to solve all our foreign policy problems, because it's going to help solve all of our domestic life problems or improve our domestic lives. Yes? But if you really think about it, our problem with terrorism and how they get their money, they have gotten it from oil because so many of the countries that terrorism started in they, they get their money from oil. And so because we have been restricting ourselves and encouraging other countries like 
Obama went down to Brazil and mm -hmm. gave them a loan to to yeah. to, um, to drill down there. Offshore. Yeah, offshore. Um, instead of concentrating more on drilling here, so we'd be energy independent and dry up the money sources that are but going but to you, other. Your foreign policy can't be that whatever your enemy whatever your enemy makes money off of, you're going to try to make it profitless. Like that's just that's not a, a, a tenable strategy. And particularly if it's oil. Now, there are a lot of problems historically why these governments have ownership of the oil, which is a big problem. But nevertheless, oil is incredibly valuable. Nothing is going to change that fact. And if it wasn't oil, it could be something else. Well, supply and de demand. If we have a glut of oil, like from fracking here, wouldn't that make the price of oil worldwide go down? Right. But this, that's not what's making the... Those price differences are not what's really making... As I don't know anything that that would show that those are making the difference between us being attacked and us not. But in any case, I think for sure, if you have a direct problem, like if you're worried about, and I am worried about, Iran's nuclear program, that needs to be addressed directly. It can't be addressed by hoping that you can flood the world with, uh, with oil uh, and drastically out, you know, in relation to demand. It, it just, it's, I think it's the wrong way of thinking about foreign policy. The reason to flood the world with oil is to enjoy yourself. I mean, is is to benefit. Make it cheaper. Yes. Uh, there's some questions from the audience. Oh, oh excellent. Uh, number one, can you elaborate on the link between medicine and oil? Uh, sure. Well, it's made of oil. One, so most. I don't know who I'm looking at. Uh, should I look there? <laughs> Are you the audience? Okay. So, I mean, I mean, one is is just. You know, so modern materials, a, a huge number of them are made from oil and, and because of the composition of it and because of modern science and technology, you can synthesize it to meet whatever purposes you have. So in this case, whatever delivery system you want for you know, a particular medicine, you, you can optimize that using oil. So that's one of them. I think the thing that's more overlooked though is the relationship between something like medicine, which is an overwhelmingly overwhelmingly intellectual field, and time. I mentioned that, that energy is machine calories. So the more you can get machines to do your physical work for you, the longer you can live, but also the more time you have to do mental work, which can then create new technologies, including new technologies for more machine calories, and it's a virtuous circle. But part of that is also you have time to do things like figure out medical solutions. So it's, it's no accident that modern medicine emerges in the industrial age because that's when we finally have time to actually think. And, and it, one thing that irks me about universities is it's such a magnificent thing that you can spend, that people can spend all this time learning uh, knowledge to go into knowledge work and that there seems to be little appreciation of the physical energy and, and physical machines uh, that make that possible. But if, if someone was coming here from 300 years ago they would just be baffled. They just said, "Why aren't you guys on a farm? Why just get to? How are you living? Let alone the standard of living." And it's it's because of energy and it's because of, of technology. So the more kind of intellectual a field, almost the more you should attribute it uh, to energy and energy producers. So when you hear about some great Nobel Prize winning discussion uh, or uh, thinker, you know, think big oil. And I just want to say one quick thing too, because of the link between oil and medicine. There's also a very cool link between nuclear oh yeah. and medicine, because not necessarily just nuclear power per se, but the big bad scary nuclear materials <coughs> end up in a lot of. Uh, there's medical tracers, 
uh, you can fight cancer with medical isotopes and um, may our MRIs are actually NMRIs, nuclear magnetic resonance imaging. We just dropped the N because nuclear is scary. But there's also a huge link between nuclear and medicine too, where it's not that so we can harness this for harness nuclear materials for very beneficial purposes. Other questions? If you don't mind, I have two more audience questions, uh, both about fossil fuels. Okay. Uh, the claim is constantly made that we're running out, mm -hmm. or that this is not a sustainable mm -hmm. form of, of fuel. And second, that the uh, use of fossil fuels is causing step one global warming, which is then causing uh, natural disasters to not necessarily, well, both increase in number and increase in magnitude. Mm -hmm. So that you get hurricanes that would have been a one or now times 10 and they wipe out the entire East Coast. Can you speak to both of them? Sure. <laughs> I, always this, I always find this interesting that these two things are coupled because it's it, it really amounts, as far as I can tell, it amounts to the problem with fossil fuels is there aren't enough of them. And then the problem with fossil fuels is there's way too much of them. Right? Because if you're running out, shouldn't that be a good thing? If you're if they're causing all this global warming, then you'll then you'll uh, then you then you'll use something else. So there's all kinds of perspectives. I mean, look, the, the the moral principle is just you have the right to use the best technology that you can at any given time. Everything quote runs out at some point in time. And the sun ultimately runs out. Certainly, you know the particular known ways to get the materials from solar panels that has a you know shorter lifespan than say oil, but the way, you know, morally, you should use the best and then you should keep trying to do it better. And what that leads to is what I like to call progressive energy, which is the, the title of a book I'm working on, which means that you always find better and better ways of, of uh, harnessing energy from nature. And as I mentioned earlier, the phenomenon of, of taking raw materials, I think I mentioned this, taking raw materials that are useless and figuring out how to make them useful. So taking black glob and making it into jet fuel and then taking this useless metal and making it into nuclear power and then hopefully ultimately other stuff. But in, in our time horizon, there's running out is, is not the issue. So uh, that's, it, and it's, it's essentially based on the fallacy that uh, nature gives us our resources. Like our energy resources are nature given and you, that's, that's simply, nature gives us the raw materials, but it's the mind that gives us resources. And there's no end to the amount of raw materials, and there's no end to what the mind can do as long as it's, it's free. So there's no issue there. Uh, in terms of global warming, uh, so you, this, is, this is the kind of thing that understandably scares a lot of people, because you hear all of these apocalyptic claims and, and what do you make of them, and there's all, you hear all these consensus statements and I'd say two things about it, just uh, from a, a more philosophical perspective. One is you have to always be clear on what the heck you're talking about. And this is <laughs> global, no, seriously, like global warming, what does that mean? Does that mean that of the two options, so there's two options, right? Overall, the temperatures are getting warmer or cooler. Or changes. Yeah, yeah, or climate change. That is <laughs> a one option of one, right? <laughs> climate always changes. So whenever someone, I hear that, Philosophically, I know they're trying to con me. You, even if they have something to them, it's, it's they're trying to intimidate me by saying something obvious like, oh, do, do you deny the globe is warming? And then they say, oh, well, we've got to ban fossil fuels, which is 
a non sequitur. So does it mean global warming? Does it mean man-made global warming? If so, how much? Does it mean catastrophic man-made global warming? Does it mean so catastrophic that no technology uh, can overcome it? Does it mean it's catastrophic, but we also were against nuclear power, even though that emits no CO2, which is the dominant incoherent view? So we have to be clear on what the view is. So let's, let's say the view is catastrophic. Uh, well, we'll just ask, what is the evidence about the emission of CO2 from the combustion process of, of fossil fuels, which generates fundamentally water vapor and carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide what's called an infrared absorber, or more colloquially greenhouse gas, which leads to a certain uh, all things be equal heating effect. Now, there's a bunch of things to say about this, but I'd say as someone looking into it, the first thing you should ask if someone says, hey, we're encountering catastrophic global warming is, okay, what's happened to the rate of catastrophe in terms of weather and climate? And uh, I don't have the, the graph with me. I showed it at the Bill McKibben debate. But even though these claims of catastrophe have been made for decades and decades and decades, uh, since 1920, which is really the time where we started using really noticeable amounts uh, of fossil fuels, what you have is you have a huge increase in CO2 emissions and a dramatic decrease in deaths uh, from climate. Uh, and what that indicates is that is that the overwhelming phenomenon and what determines our safety from climate is is technology and in particular energy technology. So there's all kinds. I mean, most of these claims about more storms and whatnot, those are are just big misrepresentations. But in terms of it being just a casual inquiry issue, you have to ask first. If they say they're a, a catastrophe, you have to look at what's the evidence there's a catastrophe. And if the evidence is that there's, if the pro so-called problem has gotten 50 times better, which a 98% decrease means, then it's very suspicious. And especially if they've never told you that it's become 50 times better, it's very suspicious. Um, and, and I think the, the quality of the, uh, of the reporting on the state of the science is in line with the, the vagueness and the rest of the deception involved in it is ultimately, you know, is ultimately the product of ideological groups. But that's that requires more study to come to that conclusion. The common sense of it is that it is it is uh, uh, not the issue. Yes. Um, so last last question. Last question. Oh, um, Yours. Yeah. Right. Can, you, can you talk a little bit about? oil as being feedstock for a lot of electrical utilities because I know that you know some of these ancient um, power plants have been phased out with the drop in price of natural gas and, and obviously just like the movie supply of it. But you know not all of them are gone. I'm wondering if you can just speak a little bit about why that might be, um, you know, what are some of the things that would help phase out some of these oil fire power plants where you know where, where I live in Massachusetts. Um, they recently just shut down one of them on the Cape because of the Cape Wind project. So clearly alternatives are being seek to sought to oil as kind of the, the feedstock for these utility power plants. But I'm wondering just what's happening on a, on a larger scale, like the way the way that. Well, it's, it's I mean, it's a, if you look at if you just take a look at say the um, I mean any of the major information agencies on this, you're talking about a very very tiny percentage of, of oil that's used for electricity generation. And even then, if you subdivide it within, say, refineries, there are reasons to use part of the oil for electricity generation just because it's very efficient and it's local. It's a very small issue. And I wouldn't, in general, with utilities, 
I mean, in general, it's going to be phased out just because oil is so much, it's so valuable for portable fuel and, and synthetics that it just, and there are superior, thi there are other things that can do the job for a fixed power source that can't do it for a portable power source. But the general phenomenon which, which happens with coal is that the fact that you have uh, a fuel that at the moment is cheaper doesn't mean that it's efficient to shut down an existing plant because there's all that capital that's built into it. So some, but I mentioned, I don't think you're here for this, but I mentioned utilities are incredibly irrational in terms of their incentives. And one incentive they have is they're given economic incentives to shut down a perfectly functional plant and build a brand new one with tons of, you know, using tons of energy, tons of money, just because that's their compensation structure. Whereas in many cases, an existing coal plant is far more economic than a new building a new natural gas plant. And in California, it's the worst. This is where I'm from because we have the San Onofre plant in, in um, I'm in Orange County. It's just south of me in, in that area. And they just keep shutting down. They, I mean, it's almost free power at this point because you have all the investment on the front end. And they've just, over the decades, they've been shutting it down. And this is power that can last for at least 60 years. And uh, so in general, if, if people are left free, there's they'll do what's economic. I don't think Cape Wind is an example of economic because it's, it's coercion uh, and subsidies. But yeah, I don't think oil is an issue, but there is a real issue with, with shutting down productive power plants in the name of, of natural gas. Natural gas is fantastic, and I think if you're building a new power plant today, it makes a lot of sense for it to be natural gas. But the idea that we should just kill all of these other plants, I think, is uh, has been destructive. So that's a weird... No, to end on, so I'll just say uh, out of self-promotion, hopefully helping you guys with energy, check out industrialprogress.net, sign up for the newsletter, and, and thanks everyone for asking such good questions. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks to Gary Hull and Duke University for having us. Thanks to Thomas for joining me. It was a really fun event. Uh, it was good to just be able to explain straightforwardly all the amazing potential of oil technology and really even more so nuclear technology in the sense of the latter, has, the latter potential has really, really been restrained and it's always good to be able to talk about that. At CIP, for various reasons, we focus mostly on fossil fuels. Uh, fossil fuels are today and for the foreseeable future the most important energy uh, fuel and that's one reason why uh, but another reason why is that right now that's the easiest area to make an impact in unfortunately nuclear is so taken over by the government in so many ways that it's it's difficult to make a difference in the same way you can on say the keystone pipe keystone xl pipeline or fracking but still, it, it, is, it is a real priority of ours to get the liberation of the nuclear industry. And, and one of these days, we're going to start an I Love Nuclear page and uh, really build a stable of writers who, who very, very aggressively and aspirationally try to bring us toward a future where nuclear power is free to reach its full and, I believe, amazing potential. And with that, I think we'll wrap up the show. As always, if you have any questions or comments, love mail or hate mail, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Otherwise, we'll be here next week. I'm not sure whether it'll be another 
a new guest or whether it'll be uh, a new lecture. Uh, but after that, after next week, I'll be home for a while. Next week, I'm debating Sierra Club April 16th, so we might use that recording. Uh, or we might bring on uh, a new guest. Plenty of action going on. But until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.